Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. We live in a very, very unique society. In fact, we live in a society that is bombarded by evil all around us. It is a society that has uh, God-hating agenda, agendas that hate God. And they seek to undermine biblically-based values. Ultimately, the core, at the core of the rebellion which we see and has been present in one form or another in all societies, is a society that is in rebellion against God. You know, you see this work out in so many different ways in society. In our society, I think of gay marriage, um, which is definitionally incorrect on both words. Uh, but I would note, you know, this past month being the month June, and uh, that was something that had to be celebrated by the powers that be uh, so they could curtail to that type of theology. And really, that is a correct way of saying it. And gay marriage is not an opinion, it's a theology. It is a uh, extracting of a doctrinal uh, belief system. That's what makes it a theology. It is not true theology, it is not right theology, but it is a humanistic theology. I think of lesbianism that exists today and feminism uh, that has had its great, great climb uh, since, since the mid-1950s and 1960s, which really has just, you know, this is one of the fascinating things about history. It's one of the reasons I just could really say that I love history. Uh, because one thing that history proves, as the historian Santana said so well, history proves that people don't know history. History repeats itself, and those who will not learn from it are destined to repeat it. You know, feminism has given way. I remember as a young man, feminism gave way that we had to have the WNBA. Now, I've never really been drawn to the NBA. I I like uh, college basketball. It's just, to me, different. And that gave birth to WNBA. And uh, in the 90s in particular, you see a great great move towards having um, female sports on on an equal footing with men's sports. I remember, I believe it was the 92 or 94, 96 uh, U.S. women's soccer team led by a lady by the name of Mia Hamm. And uh, they won the international title. And, and from then to the debate is which is better and which is this and which is that. And I only bring this up in reference to now when you fast forward 25 years, the very feminism that fought for that is now f- fighting for trans sports rights, which in my mind is humorous in one regard. Because really what you're going to do is have two male professional sports systems. That's what you're going to have. You're not going to have a male and female. You're going to have... Two men's sports is what you're going to have. That's what's going to have. And what's at the birth of it? Feminism. I guess really what I'm saying is feminism has a way of extinguishing females. That's what feminism really is. Feminism is a direct, at its core, rebellion against God. I think also when you look at this society, uh, you have silly men. You have silly men that will use their and misuse and abuse their position. You have men that uh, over the years, in reference to verse number 22, uh, that they have used their position uh, to dictate their power. Not to lead, but to dictate. 
And they have used their power to subdue others rather than to applaud others. They have used their strength to assault and not protect. They have used their position to be served and not to seek the service of others. And I think when you look at a society, you see all of these problems, and really they stem from the same evil root, which is rebellion against God's core desire for His children. Marriage, of course, was first implemented in the Garden of Eden. It was in the Garden of Eden that you had two beings that God created, and He created them, and this is, is, is a word here that is not hard to pronounce. I'm sure every adult can spell it. It's not something you give a lot of time and consideration for, but it's one you need to etch in the theological truths. When God created male and female, He did that on purpose. It was intentional in His design. He made a female a female, and He did so on purpose. And he said of the female gender, he said, that is good. And he said of the male gender that he created, and he created on purpose with intent, it is good. So which is better? They're both good. I also would say that they are the only two genders that God ever created. And the world knows this. There's no confusion over this. I'm always amazed when you come to these, these uh, gender reassignment surgeries that you hear folks talking about today. It's not like when you were to go down and you go down to Hershey Med Center, if that's where you want to go, and, and you're going to get a gender reassignment surgery. It's not like they pull down a book and give you a scroll and you pick one of the 50 different genders you want to be. You've got one choice other than what you are. That's it. That's what a gender reassignment surgery is. And the reality is at its base core, it is in diametric re uh, rebellion against the Almighty God. Why is it that way? Because sin entered the world. And death passed upon all men, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let's take a quick survey of the book of Genesis. You, you want to see how far man moved from the promises and, here's our word, purpose of God? Just survey the 50 chapters of Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 2, Adam said of woman, particularly Eve, our grandmother, all of our grandmothers, amen? All, there's only one race in the world, it's the human race. There's no three races, four races, five races, nor are there 19 and 20 genders. It's quite simplistic. There's one race, and it's Adam's race. Now, of Adam, he had a wife. Adam's wife's name was Eve. She was the mother of all things that lived, all of, of, of the human race. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23, Adam says of Eve, she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Very endearing. In the preceding verses, in verse number 18, God said to himself about man, it is good for him not to be alone. I will make him and help, here's a great word, meat for him. It is not M-E-A-T as to what some of the carnivores are going to eat this afternoon for lunch. It is M-E-E-T. But the word meat does not mean the same as the, the way in which we use it today. Meat in a sense of introduce yourselves to someone. This meat in its old English vernacular has the idea of that which was meant. Derive, if you will, in your mind, harking back to our word earlier. Purpose. There's a purpose. There's a purpose for marriage. There's a purpose for male. There's a purpose for female. God is a God of structure, order, and sovereign plan and dictate. Everything He does has purpose to it. 
God did not just look at marriage and say, well, I I think this could be a good idea. I, I think this just might work. God in his sovereign plan said, I am going to make him a help meet. There is an intentionality to it. Therefore, marriage has defined biblical purposes. But that's not the theme of our message this morning. But gaze in your mind with me. From your readings of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, one man, one woman. You come to Genesis chapter 4, you're a chapter and a half beyond the fall. There's the first mention of a polygamous marriage. Lamech had two wives. First man in the Bible to have two wives. He's of the line of Cain. An assault on biblical, what we call traditional. I don't really care much to the traditions unless they're based on the biblical worldview, but they're an assault on the purpose God had, polygamy. You come to Genesis chapter 16, you got the first adultery in the Bible. Go to Genesis chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, you've got the first mention of homosexuality in the Bible. Continue reading through Genesis 19, and you'll come to the end of the chapter, and you'll have the first incest in the Scriptures, one of Lot. In Genesis chapter 26, you'll have unequal marriages. It's the first mention. Though they happened earlier in Scripture, it's the first direct mention of it. And it is one called Esau. This is what made his marriage unequal. And what made his marriage unequal is he was a son of the covenant, and he married those outside the covenant bounds. And he was polygamous at that. But here, mom and dad, Isaac and Rebekah, no doubt, reared. Esau and Jacob were. I know they were reared for this because you find it carried out later in Jacob's life. But they were reared in the idea uh, to whence they should gather to themselves a bride. You'll remember Abraham likely took one his chief servant, Eleazar, in chapter 24. And he said, you go back, Eleazar, Abraham did. You go back to the land of my nativity where there's a semblance of those that worship Jehovah. And you get one of my relatives there, distant relatives, and you bring them back for wife. Do not, Eleazar! Don't you dare bring my boy, my only boy, Isaac, a gal from the Hittites. Don't bring him a gal from the Canaanites. That's what made it an unequal marriage. You had those that knew of Jehovah and those that did not. Those that bowed the knee to Jehovah and those that did not. And so Eliezer went. He's practically clueless on this. There's an impactful statement there. He said, I being the way the Lord led me hath prospered this day. He went back to exactly where he knew he needed to go and people are coming and going. And he said, Lord, would you please... And God, in the right answer to that prayer, bawled about old Rebecca, and she was willing to go back. Isaac's later in the field musing, and there he could see the camel train coming in. And old Rebecca there, and they were met to be married, and God blessed that union and gave them twins, Esau and Jacob. And Esau, that brutish, foolish young lad, would gather to himself, you'll read of this in Genesis 26, Hittite wives. And there's a phrase that it says, And they were much of a grief unto his parents. You get an unequal marriage, you raised in a Christian environment, one that surrounds itself with truth, you go and marry one of the Gentile girls that is spiritually. One that holds not, and I'm not talking about some type of of topical she believes in Jesus. I mean someone that doesn't worship the true and living God in the right and biblical context. It will be a grief to your mind and your heart and to your parents and to your wives. And ultimately one day your children's children you won't recognize from the worldly children that you live around. Much of a mind unequal marriage. When you get to Genesis chapter 34 you got fornication. 
Dinah, the daughter of Leah, was taken and engaged in premarital intimacy with one named Shechem. Interesting enough, in Genesis chapter 4, he paid for it with his life through the lies and deception of Dinah's two brothers. Four chapters later, Genesis chapter 38, you have the first, the first prostitution. And that was committed by Judah. Conveniently enough, it was done with his daughter-in-law. He did not know it at the time. And then when you get to Genesis chapter 39, you've got seduction. Potiphar's wife, an attempted rape upon Joseph in his life. He would pay for it with prison. I mean, friend, we don't have to move 25, 30 chapters beyond flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, help meet from her. And all of a sudden, you've got a association that is unrecognized according to the purpose of the Word of God. Now, I list all that because when you look at marriages today in our society, it's important for you to understand why there are so many marriages failing. Why there are so many today that hold, so they say, to a traditional values. I think about the U.S. Congresswoman just this past week. Uh, she's from South Carolina, uh, well know her district. Uh, her name is Nancy Mace. She attended a prayer breakfast for a, uh, a senatorial candidate who's running for president. It was a prayer breakfast. And in her speech, which was uh, given off the cuff, but it was a public speech, she talked about how uh, in order that she might be in time for this prayer breakfast, that she did not engage with fornication with her live-in boyfriend. What do you make about that with a prayer service? Well, I just submit to you, that's the world we're living in. You're watching the degradation of moral and marital values be systematically pulled apart even by those that say they are allies to that same position. I've yet to meet the presidential candidate that could articulate the biblical values of what a marriage ought to be. I care not for their party. I'm saying that in a broad sense. When it comes to your elected leader, you're not voting for a godly individual in the sense of being your high priest. You're voting for one to be your civic leader. And oh, how the two lines would merge into one. Oh, how that you would really have godly individuals that would be in a place of power and authority and would dictate by the orders and decrees of the principles of the Word of God. But while that may not happen, that does not mean that it is not possible that even in 2023 that a man and a woman saved following the Word of God cannot unite in marriage on purpose and on purpose with said marriage please God and find a fulfilling unity in the bonds of biblical marriage. In fact, what I just said, that lengthy homily is a direct reference that is often concluded by many to wonder if marriage can even really be a benefit to anyone in this life. Let me just give you one phrase. Now, there's a number of passages we look at. Put your marker here in Ephesians and turn to that other passage, if you will. Let me tell you what God said about marriage. Now, listen. This is not what God said about secular marriages. And when I speak of marriages, I'm not talking about a wedding. If wonderful weddings make great marriages, Hollywood be full of some of the greatest marriages on planet Earth. You know what Hollywood knows about great weddings? They know how to have them over and over and over and over again. That's what they know how to do it. I'm going to get marital advice from Hollywood. 
I certainly wouldn't get marital advice from Dr. Phil or Dr. Bill or Dr. Bob, nor to get marital advice from almost anyone in Washington, D.C., or that has ever been in Washington, D.C. But I can get it from the Word of God. But let me show you the benefit, the powerful benefit of a biblical marriage applied in our life. Let me show you the end result. I think that will elicit our attention. Look in 1 Peter chapter 3. And I want you to draw your eyes down, if you will, to verse 7. <clears throat> time will not, we don't have time to go through every verse here because I want to go back to Ephesians. But note, if you will, in verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them. Who's the them? The singular wife of the husband. According to knowledge, giving honor. You know what that honor means? Value. I'm not talking about the roles of the husband. You'll have to come back next week for that. Honor. Remember what I said? Honor is value. It's worth. We're instructed in chapter 2 to give honor to the king. 1 Peter chapter 2. Here, the husband should give honor to his wife. I always marvel at the bozo that has no honor for his wife. Proverbs chapter 31 says about that virtuous woman that the heart of her husband does safely trust in her. He hath no need of spoil. She's not going to be a ruination to him. But I digress. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Look at these phrases here. If you write in your Bible, circle, highlight them. If you're on your device, put them in bold, underscore them, draw smiley faces or whatever you've got to do. As being heirs together of the grace of life. I want you to circle heirs together and grace. You read your scriptures, the word grace means a lot of different things sometimes. You talk about a general grace, you talk about a saving grace. You can talk also about spiritual graces that God has given us. And the word there is keros. But also used interchangeably with the word grace is the word gift. So, for instance, when you come to Romans chapter 5 and he's talking about the free gift, it's the keros. It's the grace of God. When God looks at it, gift and grace are synonymous. God's great gift is also God's great grace. To have a spiritual gift is to have a spiritual grace. That's how they work. And here, he's reminding husbands. That's his direct address. Likewise, ye husbands... Dwell with her according to knowledge, giving honor unto her as the weaker vessel. Why? Because when you do such, the fulfillment of marriage, you are heirs together. You know what an heir is. Now, this is an H-E-I-R-S, not an A-I-R. He's not talking about the brand new Nikes. He's not referencing the atmosphere. He's talking about one that is the recipient of something of great value. You know, just because someone left you something in their estate does not mean that you're an heir in a sense of wealth and value. But this is. This is the idea of one that has received a significant value in life. You are heirs together. Heirs together of what? The grace, the gift of life. One of the preeminent joys that can be had is a godly marriage. That doesn't eradicate 
all of that. There are many people. There are many people that are focused and dedicated to the things of God, yet they have a spouse that is rebellious against the things of God. What he's pointing at here is the possibility that it can be attained. It's not a given promise. And just because you're married to someone that you were sweetly kin to when you were 17 doesn't mean at the end of your life that you're simply going to be sweetly married to the heir together. This is the possibility of what can happen when you've got two children of God, and as we spoke of a couple of weeks ago, following and yielding the Spirit of God. Look back in Ephesians chapter 5. Note the context. Don't take this passage out of context. The only way this is ever going to work... The only way there's ever the possibility of having that purposeful marriage on life is if you have the truths and the preconditions met of Ephesians chapter 5. Notice, if you will, verse number 18, be filled with the Spirit. That's yielded. So you've got a husband that's a believer and a wife that's a believer. It's not what he's talking about. Just because you've got two believers that are married together does not mean that you will experience the full purpose of God's blessing on marriage. That's not the way that works. Some of the biggest jerks I've ever met in my life have been Christians. I don't buy into that. What he's talking about is those that are spirit-led. Those that are exhibiting in their life the fruit of the Spirit. Those that are spiritually-minded and not controlled by their fleshly, innate impulses. 1 Peter chapter 3, to those individuals, it is heirs together of the grace of life. With this being the case, it's very important that we take a moment to consider wisdom and embrace discernment prior to marriage. If ever there was a reason to have premarital counseling is to see if there was the potential to have the grace of life. Why? A number of times you ask somebody why they're getting married, you know what the answer is? Me. Now they don't package it that way. We're smart. We're not stupid. But that's what it is. Why are you getting married? Why do you want to marry her? Because she's pretty. Because he's handsome. Because he's rich. Because her dad's rich. Because I like to be with her. Because she makes me feel whole. Did you hear all those words? Me, 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 me. You ain't going to reach heirs together the grace of life with that mindset. Marriage might start with an M, but it is never about you. Marriage packaged together is all about the Spirit of God ministering through you to accomplish His purpose in your life and the fulfillment of that individual to whom you are married. That's why only a spiritual marriage, only a marriage in which the Spirit of God has center place in that life will really reach the fullest potential of what God had it to be. So often, people associate many things with marriage But beauty won't cut it. 
Money won't cut it. Nominal Christianity won't cut it. The flesh and its all desires will not allow you to have the marriage that you want nor that which your flesh wants. Compromise will not bring it. Well, we're going to split everything 50-50. If you want a marriage that is blessed like the Creator said it could and should be, you must see it and pursue His path to experience that purpose. In order that we might have this grace of life, the husband and wife must complement, that's an important word, the biblical viewpoint, perspective of marriage is complementarianism, not egalitarianism. Egalitarian, we get the idea of equality. God never said, I see Adam, it's good that he not be alone. I should make him an equal for himself. First Peter talks about a weaker vessel. There's order and structure into what God is doing. The simple reality of the matter is this. Physical compatibility, attraction, personality test, nor extravagant weddings... None of them necessitate a godly marriage. They are distinctly different. In fact, well, I'm going to go on record here. Two spirit-led believers through obedience to the Scripture can have a marriage that is fulfilling, rewarding, and truly a treasure of God even if they don't match up by personalities. That's what I'm telling you. In this passage, put it in historical context for a moment. Who's Paul writing to? Hint, hint, he ain't writing to you. We're reading it by application of truth. It's the epistle to the Ephesians. Ephesus is a Gentile city. These are people that got saved out of heathenism. These are people that got saved out of worship to Diana the Ephesian God, remember? These are people that, that embraced polytheistic worship and they went around drinking gluttonously and puking up in holes worshiping the god Dionysus. These are not people that went to Christian camp. And then suddenly they're given the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this man who's a pagan and his wife's a pagan put their faith in Jesus Christ and now they're believing Gentiles. What do we do? The culture was completely different what we experienced. There was craziness going on. In Corinthians, in Corinth that is south, you had, you had two types of people that, that were publicly public women. You had prostitutes and protesting women. That's what you had in Corinth. Ephesus would have been similar. They're Gentiles. There's no order and structure to the marriage. Divorce courts overrun. If you had, in this Grecian culture... If you had a young man that didn't have a home, he was often taken away and put in military charge. If you had a young female that was outside the realm of her home, she was often taken and made a temple prostitute. That's right. The Word of God does more for the wholesome liberation of women than feminism could ever imagine doing. For when Paul's talking about husbands loving your wives, there's many of these Ephesus men that have never heard anything like this. And wives being submissive to your own husband and the permanence and singularity of marriage, this was foreign to their ears. Paul does not tell them to go get a personality test. And there's a place for that. 
He doesn't say, be submissive if you have the same interest. He doesn't say, make sure uh, that, uh, uh, that you have extravagant weddings. He's assuming these people are married, they've come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and he's guaranteeing them that regardless of the state that they're in, if they'll be submissive to the leading of the Spirit of God in their life, and they'll walk after the newness of life, and they'll fight the good fight of Jesus Christ, and crucify the flesh, that the end result thereof will be a marriage on purpose that pleases God. That's what he's telling them. And we find so many today that they're united under the nuptial vows and they're nominal Christians and their marriages are disintegrating. For it has nothing to do with your personality. It has everything to do with your posture towards the things of God. It has everything to do with your relationship. You want to be a godly husband? It will come as you walk and become a godly Christian. You want to be a godly wife? It will come as you follow the truths of the Word of God. What does it mean to be submissive? Now I laid all of this groundwork to come to this point because if we just start in verse 22 and talking about submissive, in your mind is going to work so many different conflicting passages. There's no doubt that every one of us at one time have met a husband that we're like, wow, in his dreams would I submit to him. I know that's the way I would feel in my heart. So what is it that Paul is expressing to the Ephesus? What does he mean, submissive? Let me remind you from last week. It's used at least three times in four verses. If you look in verse 21, there's a submission one to another. Hupotasio is the Greek word. He uses it again in verse 22 with regards to the wife. Submit your, yourselves. He uses it again in verse 20, 24. Therefore, it's the church's subject. Subject, submission, same word, hupotasio. Hupotasio, that Greek word there, is the idea... It's the idea of a military connotation. And it's not singularly used only in reference to a marriage. It's used in reference to parental relationships. See Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. In fact, if you were to turn and you'd look over at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5, it's used in an employment relationship. It's used in civil relationships as well. Romans chapter 13, Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. Titus chapter 3 and verse 1, obey, them, obey the magistrates. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, submit to every ordinance of man. I would submit that as Americans, this is an area that we often struggle with. But it's also an area that we're blessed with. I get, at least on paper, I have the opportunity to, to vote for my elected leaders and therefore I can choose my leaders that are making my laws. Now that doesn't mean that every law that is even passed by the leaders that I helped elect is exactly the law that I would have. But nevertheless, that is a wonderful blessing that the world over does not really have. We have a way in which we can have the redress of grievances. If the law was used against you in an unlawful means, there's a process of your appeal. The world over does not have that. There's a whole line of them. For instance, we're also told that there is a level of ecclesiastical submission. Hebrews chapter 13, Obey them that have rule over you. Submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as one that give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. We could also reference that to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. When we deal with submission of the wife, it does not deal with her worth and certainly does not deal with her value. To be submissive is not to be lesser than. In fact, it's often the opposite that is most often true. This husband and wife... They are equal in their sainthood. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, as an apostle who was to some regard either a widow, I, I kind of lean to the fact that he was a widow, uh, but it, he says, have I not arrived as an apostle? Lead about a sister as wife. He's not talking about marrying his sister. He's talking about that he would not consider for a moment the opportunity to marry someone that was not a dedicated believer. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he articulates on why he remained in an unmarried state that he might give himself for the full ministry of God. And while we're there referencing 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he also said to those whose husbands had forsaken them, and he had also said to those individuals who had yet not had a husband, he said, I would that you remain even as I. Why? So you can give yourself to the full cause of the gospel just as I do. That's what he said. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So this wife is equal in her sainthood with God. She has equality in her walk with God. Now listen, I say something directly here. God is not going to answer the husband's prayer quicker because he's a man than he's going to answer a woman's prayer simply because she's a woman. In fact, in heaven, in those glorified bodies will be neither male nor female. There's an equality in her walk with God. Let me address that for a moment. It doesn't mean that because you're a woman that you have a limit on how God might use you in a sense of how close you can walk to God. You're not limited in that regard. Let me say also that there's equality in the account they give to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All some are going to be in surprise in that day as they stand before the, the Lamb of God and He begins to show them the work, the judgment of the works to these believers and they want to cast all the dispersion on the reasons they could not accomplish the will of God in their life because of something their husband did or didn't do. It ain't going to stand for muster. We will all individually give an account. Romans speaks of this. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's equality in the indwelling of the Spirit of God. She doesn't have less of the Spirit of God than you have. God didn't give you just a little bit more and her a little bit less. <laughs> it's not like because you're a man, she gave you just, he gave you a little bit more of the pie than she got. Because she was a female. She needed half a slice. It didn't work that way. She got the same Holy Spirit of God, the same manner you got it, the same fullness, the same access. All of that is equality. And let me say also there's the equality of ability to know God. In fact, many times in ministry I've met a child of God, a lady in a marriage that was the giant of faith in their home and not their husband. I've seen that more times than I can count on one hand. Yet God is in order. This word submissiveness, submitting, subject, it has the idea of being arranged into an order as it seemeth fit unto God. Why is it this way? It's because God dictated it this way. In fact, this word submission, as we said a moment ago, has the idea of a military order. It's the idea of a general versus a, a sergeant or a lieutenant, if you will. The general thing that might help you convey this greater is the idea, it's the idea of the same mission. I love documentaries. It's Friday night, we're sitting down and somehow the remote fell in my hand. It was really a marvel of science. 
I'm sure all the stars aligned. And I held it in my hand for a moment and I said, I know exactly what I'm going to do. In 1970s, BBC put on The World at War. If you'd like to borrow it, I, I don't know if I have all the pieces to it, but it's about 52 hours of World War II documentary where they interview guys that served in various generals. That's what they do. And uh, last night, they were talking about the, or Friday night, the invasion of Salerno. Oh, wow, it was wonderful. And they were interviewing General Mark Clark, who was not well liked by men like Patton because he was so much younger. He was 48 years old, and in World War II, he was the youngest U.S. general. And there was a couple of times he jumped. He had an uncanny ability uh, to be able to govern and bring people along. And so he's a four-star general at 48 years old. When they show him in the photo and they're talking to him, he looks, he looks younger. He would have been in his 60s. All the other generals look like they were in their 80s. I mean, you're wondering what happened. And I'm, I'm, boy, that just, I had to pause it and research this guy for a little bit. And then every time he came on. But also in this documentary, they interview guys that were on the ground. I didn't know any of them. Not one of them. I couldn't even Google them. There was, they weren't generals. Many of them weren't officers. It was sergeant this or lieutenant this or private this. But the details that they could give because they really were right in the thick of the moment. So let me ask you a question. Who won the battle at Salerno? Was it really Mark Clark? Do you see how that worked? What made him better? You know how Mark Clark became a general? Eisenhower, on happenstance, met him. Saw his ability and said, I need this guy. This guy can accomplish and help us. That's how it happened. That's what it has to do. But Mark Clark and all of those others that no one knows anything about, guess the role. Who chose their role? The Supreme Allied Commander. My friend, when you think of submission, your sovereign God chose your role. And he said, this is where I want you. And the idea of submission is not inferiority, but rather it's the part that you play in accomplishing the mission, which is the purpose of God. This is how God wants life and I might say ministry done. The New Testament church has greatly been blessed by the increased labors of our sisters. Go read Romans chapter 16. It talks about a lady from Chinchuria. She dominates more words and passages from the Apostle Paul than anyone else in that entire chapter. And it was to her... Phoebe, I believe her name was, that Paul instructed the church at one when she comes, give her help whatever she needed, for she hath been a sucker of many. And following her was Aquila and Priscilla, who had laid down their lives. Or later on, Trophina and Trophosa. On and on the list goes. This is the order that God has ordained. Yet, too often, problems arise because of the heart's of others, particularly men in places, the home primarily, that will not take seriously their spiritual role to lead their home. 
Men that will not take seriously the depravity of their heart and will dictate according to the whims of their desire as opposed to the truths of the Word of God. If there were no other reason for premarital counseling, it would be that our dear sisters might consider who they marry and consider it well that it is someone that is walking with God now or not to marry them. Just as the original sin damaged the divine structure of marriage, sin that permeates a man prior to marriage will continue to do so after marriage as well. In keeping of the biblical responsibility of the husbands and wife, it's important to consider that. Dear lady, you ain't going to change the dear fellow. If he's not trending on the course that he ought to be, you'd be better off to invest your lives in the things of God than to marry down spiritually. Now I know there's no young lady that's going to listen to a word of what I just said. But it's true nonetheless. If you simply want a man to get married, you can go down to the southern border and they'll line up for you. You go down to the Friday night bar room and there'll be a thousand of them present to you. But if you want to see the fullness of God's purpose, then it requires you on purpose to wait for His purpose. And while you wait, invest your life and time and resources in the avenues that God has placed in front of you. And tomorrow or next Sunday, rather, you'll hear that in reverse order. Theologically, the wife has three basic responsibilities towards her husband. In Titus chapter 2, she's to love him. In 1 Peter chapter 3, she's to respect him, to revere him. In Ephesians chapter 5, here particularly in verse 22... She is to submit to him. Yet often a husband sins against his wife. and The wife can then be submersed in the ideas that justify her unsubmissive heart. She might would say to herself, I would submit if he did what he was supposed to do. I would submit if he weren't selfish. I would submit if he would do right. I would submit if he would change. But a spiritually minded wife must focus on what God has appointed as her biblical responsibility. She must submit, note the passage in verse 22, as unto the Lord. Who is really preeminent? It is the Lord. He, as John said in John chapter 3, he must increase into our, in, in, in our life. This realm, given in verse 22, and it's given other places in scriptures too, is the limits of that submission. It's always unto the Lord. You'll notice in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, children are to obey parents in the Lord. What does that mean? It means that that submission is not unequivocal according to his demand. There is limits upon it. Come to this idea of the submission of the wife. I would note that there are usually two extremes. I'll call one of them the fatalistic extreme. It has the idea of suffering. A husband's living in a godly, I've just got to suffer along with it. I just got to to be the doormat. You know, he beats me around, I just got to be the doormat, you know. That's all I got to do. Suffering for Jesus. I would challenge that individual to read Colossians chapter 2 where God particularly addresses asceticism, the defilement of the flesh for worship, and condemns it. On the other extreme, you got this strong woman mentality. The idea of step up and step out. 
I'll put him in his place. It's akin to feminism. And those two extremes have nothing to do with his role of submission. Biblical submission has definitive parameters. Let me give you a few of them this morning. I'm just going to touch on these. For instance, I would say when we deal with the role of biblical principles of submission, it never, ever, 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 to the 10th power, involves sin. So, in cases of immorality, with the husband's wanting the wife to do something immoral, it's against the word of God, what should the wife do? No! Why? As unto the Lord, my friend. Think of the book of Esther, chapter 1. There was a queen, her name was Vashti. She was married to an idiot, a king, but he was a king. He wouldn't be the first king that was an idiot. And in his drunken stupor, he wanted to come and expose, he wanted her to come and expose herself to all the rim. What did she do? She did the right thing. The biblical precedence is God does not put up with this idea because your person told you to do something wrong, then that makes it okay for you to do. No, Ezekiel chapter 18, the soul that sinned should surely die. Say not, prophet, our fathers have eaten the sour grapes and our teeth are set on edge. Don't ever use that proverb. It's somebody else's fault I did wrong. God don't buy it now. He won't buy it at the judgment seat of Christ either. And he won't buy it at the great white throne judgment. He won't buy it. It doesn't include sin. This idea of abuse, it's not what he's talking about. If a husband was to look at his wife and forbid her from telling others about Jesus Christ, she has a higher power. And that's her Savior. She's to defy him. As unto the Lord. Prayer. Let me give you another one. A lot of wives take this idea that their husband is beyond the law of the scriptures. No. Can she not interpret the scriptures? Has she not the indwelling of the Spirit of God? Can't she look at the husband that she's supposed to love and say, Bubba, you're violating the scripture. Look right here. You know what we call that. That's the New Testament doctrine of reproof. Galatians chapter 6. He that sinneth, reprove him. What kind of love is there if there's never any reproof? I'd be a lot of husbands that wouldn't like that at all. That their wife would come up and say, look at this. Biblical submission never includes sin. Number two, biblical submission involves personal responsibility. Who's the preeminent authority? In the Lord, in the name of the Lord, in Christ, in the Lord. Matthew 28, all power is given unto me. Romans chapter 13, the powers that be are ordained of God. Who is the supreme authority? It's God. Therefore, the wife's chief responsibility is not to her husband, it's to her God. Therefore, she has an obedience to God that must be preeminent. Now, let's put this into practice. So the husband, and this is particularly true, I've known some lost men that married lost women, and the lost woman gets saved, and those men rarely ever stood in her way of living a life for Christ. But then I've met some Christian men that married Christian women, 
And the woman got renewed in the spirit of her mind, and she got right with God about some things, and she wanted to become a dedicated believer, and that carnal Christian guy stood in her way over, and, and I've seen that happen a lot. Well, what happens? Well, dear woman, dear lady, you have a personal responsibility of God. You've got to obey him. So when a carnal Christian says, I don't, I don't think I'm going to go to church anymore, what should the dear wife do? She can't get him ready. Might be better for him if she could. She can't get him ready. Well, she, got, she gets all those children to read, get her. She gets them ready. 9.30, she'll leave to be at church. Or whatever time, you know, that, that would come. What, what are you talking about? Does God want us to do that? Forsaking not the assembly of ourselves together. It's the same thing. God's not going to take credit. Well, you know, my husband... He's really not walking with God, but he, re he really decided that we need to just not go to church for a couple weeks for whatever reason. Because, you know, life has been hard and tough and challenging. And, and as a submissive wife, you know, I guess I need to follow him. I promise you, you're going to hear those words played at the judgment seat of God. You have a personal responsibility to rewrite even if your husband is not doing right. It involves the personal responsibility of trusting God. It involves the personal responsibility of prioritizing Him. It involves the personal responsibility of not submitting to fear. Many wives look at that, well, what if He leaves me? Will God leave you and forsake you? No. Where else in life will we commend that kind of stuff? Do it unless you're scared. We don't live like that. We as adults do many things on a regular basis that intimidate us. But I promise you putting God first is what the Scripture commands over and over and over and over and over again. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy might, unless your husband tells you not to do. Are you buying that vegan meat? No, that's not what he said. It involves personal responsibility. Notice over in 1 Peter a minute. You were there a moment ago. Let me draw your eyes to another verse. So now you got a conflict. you got a carnal husband and a spiritual-minded wife. you got a lost husband and a spiritual-minded wife. Now, I don't suppose that spiritual-minded wife should have married the lost guy, but let's say they were both lost and she gets saved. You've got a lost husband. What do you do then? Note verse 2, 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at this phrase here. It says, beholding your chaste conversation. It's talking about the winning of the lost husband by the behavior of a wife that is on purpose following the word of God on purpose. That word chaste, if you circle in the Bible, you circle that. Elsewhere, it's the word pure. For instance, in 1 John chapter 3, every man that hath his hope purifieth himself even as he is pure. In Titus, I believe it is chapter 2, it describes the young ladies, the young moms, the young married ladies to be discreet, chaste keepers at home. To be chaste is to be pure. Therefore, a chaste conversation, number three under principles of submission, having a chaste conversation is important, especially in areas where you're going to obey God rather than this lower authority that God has put in your life. Look over in chapter 2. In Ephesians, it's laid out in a similar fashion that 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3 is. He just doesn't deal with the ladies and go on. 
He's led up to it in a very systematic, logical way. In chapter 2, the idea of submission starts with the king before it ever gets to the husband. Look over in verse number 12. Having your conversation. You'll remember chapter 3 and verse 2, a chaste conversation. That's your lifestyle. Chapter 2 and verse 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, that you may by your good works, um, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Note verse 3. What is it? Hupotasio. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. You know what he's telling you to do? Have a holy conversation while you submit. In times where you're called upon to submit to an unlawful ordinance, what are you supposed to do? Acts chapter 4, obey the higher power. How are you supposed to do it? Riotously? No, with a chaste conversation. Your decorum and your attitude in life matters. I don't think for once it would be good for a lady that would be ruled by the Spirit of God in her life to look at her husband and just be irreverent in a sense, uh, angry, and every evil work flowing out of her face and mouth. No. Part of submission is to have a chaste or pure lifestyle. Number four, a principle of biblical submission, honoring the Word of God. Time won't allow us, but write down Titus chapter 2. Verse 3 through 5, as young women be taught to be chaste, blameless, keepers at home. I read this just a moment ago. And it uses this phrase at the end, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Part of submission, part of submission is honoring the word of God. Don't, we have no right to speak of how we're spirit led if our life doesn't line up with the book. This, this is your manual on purpose, that God has given you. Therefore, I have a responsibility as a child of God where it deals with submission. I've got to honor the Word of God. I've got to have a greater fear of God than fear of man. I've got to have Christ guide me more than the innate desires of my heart. If for no other reason... A wife needs to be submissive to the higher authority in her life that will allow her to be submissive to the husband in her life and to do so because it is a pattern for others to follow. You know, it's really hard. It is really difficult in life to build something without a pattern. It's so much easier. Some of you are craftsmen of various sorts. If I gave you a picture of something, you may not be able to build that exactly, but you could build something very similar to it. But if I just broad sweep said, build me such and so thing, and you had really never seen it, you didn't understand the dimensions or what it really did, how hard would that be to build? If there was no other reason to have a marriage on purpose in the definitive roles that God had set in place, it would be the reason that others need that pattern in their life as well. Honoring the Word of God, leaving a pattern to follow. Honoring the Word of God, surrenders our feelings to the facts of truth. That's so important. Feelings are so devastating. They're so wonderful in one sense, but they're so devastating. God has not called us to understand our feelings. He has called us to obey the facts of the Word of God. Oh, how many times a child of God 
blaspheme scriptures because they live according to what they think and how they feel rather than to what the Word of God actually says. These are principles. A chaste conversation, the honoring of the Word of God, personal responsibility, the violation of, uh, or not to violate the Word of God according to, to sin. A fifth one I would give you is this. It is to seek submission, is to seek and take wisdom from God-ordained sources. Not simply your peers and friends. My friend, I'd be very careful about where I solicit my advice for anything in life. If I was mountain climbing, I really don't need the course of people standing at the bottom of a mountain telling me how to climb. There's a free climber, and he goes out and he climbed El Capitan. Free climber, there's no harness or anything. But I'm sure there's a course of people on the ground telling him how it can't happen, how it will never happen, and certainly there's always the armchair quarterbacks that have their opinion on how it must do. And if I go to free, free climb El Capitan, I can guarantee you that I don't want any of what they have to say. I want to hear from somebody that's actually doing it or done it. So often we go get our evaluations from our peers. Preachers, young preachers do this. They always run to other young preachers to get their theology from. I thank God for the aged veteran men that God put in my life. As I would say, they had forgotten more than I knew. The same is true in marriages and child rearing. Look to your peers for encouragement, perhaps, but you better look to someone that's been down the path if you're going to be successful. One of the greatest joys this life has is to offer obedience to the will of God. For the believer, God has given every means necessary for us to accomplish this task. By His grace, we might be counted faithful at the judgment seat of Christ, knowing that we have finished our course. For those that have not accepted Christ, the relationships on this side of eternity will be the greatest heaven that they will ever have the opportunity to experience. For the child of God, we must, we must, we must submit to the Spirit of God and with His help, reach the greatest cause of fulfilling His will in our life. Let's stand to our feet. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.